what would Plato, your your favourite philosopher, have made of the last twelve months if he'd been around in 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 Europe here with us and going through both the pandemic and Brexit? I think he would say this is definitely a time when we need experts, we need facts, we need truth and truthfulness. He would hate the kind of mendacious uh, moral contortions that we've seen from certain politicians in, in the press. Now, an interesting question is what would Plato say if he was faced with a dilemma between do we prioritise care for others or do we prioritise personal freedom? I don't think he would have any particular interest in personal freedom. Would he have interest in care? <laughs> I, I, he, he would in terms of the community as a whole, in terms of a thriving community. So I think that's what he would go for there. In the ancient world, and, and that was, of course, a world which was, which was very familiar with pandemic, with, with disease. How, how would the Epicureans have coped over the last 12 months? All the Hellenistic philosophies, particularly Stoicism and Epicureanism, are very much designed to help us therapeutically through really tough and turbulent times. The Epicureans, they, they might have been okay because they uh, were living, they were living in sort of separated communes, the, the famous Garden of Epicurus. They didn't have a huge amount of contact with the, the general public. They might have been okay. But all those uh, Hellenistic philosophers were about, well, awful things happen, wars happen, pandemics happen, um, but those external events do not affect my inner rational core. They don't affect my ability to respond virtuously to what's going on around me. And if I respond virtuously to external events, then that is going to be the same as living a a good and flourishing life. So both Stoicism and Epicureanism really plugged the idea that you are the master of your fate. You have agency. Nothing that happens in the external world, including pandemics, can get at your virtue and your reason. And if they remain intact, then you're going to be okay. Yeah. I mean, is, is it maybe true that the virus has indeed not only exposed our fragility of supply chains but also of our our thinking and our belief systems you know it may maybe we have been encouraged to sort of step back a bit and be slightly more contemplative i think so i think that's a really good point and and of course you know all sorts of fragilities have been exposed to do with inequalities in in terms of social housing and air quality and access to healthcare and sick pay benefits and so on and of course as you say in supply chains my goodness me but also yeah in in terms of our inner resources for coping with turbulence and uncertainty and risk. And risk is something I've been thinking about a lot. Throughout our history, humans have had to cope on a daily basis with extreme uncertainties. And we still do, but I think we've been lured into a sense of false security because we can now just go to our phones, go to our tablets and click up information. I think we've got this false sense that we can now control the world and that 
things are just going to be ordered in ways that we order them and that we know what's going on and that we know what will going on. And of course, that's false. And that delusion has been very harshly exposed in the last year. And we are having to go back to the ancient virtues, skills, qualities that have helped humans through periods of enormous not just discomfort and danger, but extreme uncertainty in the past. Angie, what do you think we've learned over the last year about the issues around consent and, and the greatest good? Because we're all in this supposedly together, and yet there are tricky moral decisions that have to be made, aren't there? There really are, and both by, both by governments and by individuals. Yes, so a lot of the issues come down to this tension. On the surface, it's a tension between care for myself and others versus individual freedoms, my freedom to go where I want, do what I want. That's often overlaps with a, a very similar tension between am I concerned with the greatest good of the greatest number or am I concerned with individual rights, my right to go where I want, my right to associate and so on. And those are genuine tensions. And I think that issue you raise about consent is really important here. So, for instance, we've heard various people, I think Lord Justice Sumption, kind of say, don't treat me like a child. I'm an adult. Uh, let me decide for myself what risks I am prepared to take. I don't want my rights trampled on. I will make decisions for myself on what kind of risks I want to take with my health. But the the trouble with that is that if you're in a pandemic, the risk taking is very different from if you're deciding whether you're going to climb Everest or not, because you're not just taking risks on your own behalf. You're taking risks on other people's behalf, because you just can't know for sure whether you're asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic. So you just can't know who you might be passing the virus onto, and thereby, of course, limiting their freedom. You're certainly limiting their freedoms if you give it to them. But also, if people are scared of you uh, because you're refusing to wear a mask or whatever, then you're going to limit other people's freedom to go out. You have to be very careful. A lot of people saying I'm I'm waving the banner of freedom. When you look at it and scratch the surface, they're waving the banner of their own freedom, but not other people's. Mingled in with this whole issue is the issue of consent. So I can consent to usually consent to take risks on my own behalf, but I can't usually consent to take risks on somebody else's behalf. And that's what's so crucial here. If you are going out and saying, I'm exercising my free right to roam and associate, and you're not socially distancing, you're not wearing a mask, then you are risking other people without their consent. And of course, that was one of the many, many problems with the whole care home situation last year. They were being put at risk and they had no idea that that was happening and they couldn't consent to it. So really, really difficult issues here. It's got many people who previously possibly only thought about themselves to sort of realise the limits of selfishness as well. And there are limits to those individual freedoms, aren't they, when they impinge on the, those of others? What's interesting is it's also got us thinking how often my well-being in fact coincides with the well-being of those around me, certainly in the case of a virus. So unless I'm a 
billionaire holed up in my bunker and very happy never to leave my private cinema and pool again. If I'm going to go out at all, then my health depends on the health of those around me. So it's absolutely in my interest that we get as many people vaccinated as quickly as possible, not just in this country, but around the world. I mean, vaccine nationalism is profoundly self-defeating. You know, we are not going to be able to travel freely for business or leisure until basically the world is vaccinated. You're absolutely right about the limits on selfishness, but also I would say persuade people that actually this is such a clear case that my well-being is tied up with yours so intimately. And it goes deeper than just spreading a virus because we've seen that social inequalities have been both revealed but also exacerbated by the pandemic. And unless you are going to completely segregate communities, which of course I would definitely don't want to see, again, it shows that reducing those social inequalities is going to be to, for the benefit of the health, physical and mental of the whole of society. We've sort of scratched at the surface of that at the political level, haven't we? But there hasn't really been a kind of a deeper dive into those sorts of issues yet. Maybe it's because it's all, a, you know, it feels sort of very hand to mouth at the moment. But maybe there is time to think about that. Hopefully governments would have a, a sense of what kind of society and country they wanted to create, maintain, foster before any pandemic hit the horizon. But certainly when a pandemic is on the horizon, and we had a good three weeks advance notice. We could have been in a much better position than the Far East. We need to think really hard about what kind of quality of society we want to emerge from this. And that would give people a much clearer sense of what you need to be doing in the pandemic if you had a sense of where you wanted to go and where you wanted to be at the end of it. It's vital for governments, and I would say for businesses as well, really important to have a very clear sense of your values, your identity, your ethical systems, and what you want your world, your government, your business to be doing, um, not just in the pandemic, but after it, because that gives you a sense of what you need to be hanging on to and protecting. Going back to Plato, he would say, my goodness me, you are a year into this and there is still no overall thinking about what you think a flourishing society is and what kind of infrastructure and jobs facilities are needed we, we all know who we've needed to literally keep us alive in terms, not just of our healthcare workers, but the people who deliver our, our goods and so on and stock our supermarket shelves, but they're still being very poorly paid. Clapping is, is great, but it's not nearly enough. Wouldn't Plato have also sort of enjoyed delving around in the arguments about Brexit and freedom? Because it seems to many people in the first two months of this supposed sovereign freedom that it's given us if you're a Scottish fisherman and if you're an actor or a musician trying to go to Europe to practice your trade then you are in effect a lot less free than you were in um, December of last year. Yes I think Plato would have asked us to think very hard about what we mean by sovereignty and how it relates to control. Certainly it seems to me that one of the failures uh, not just in the Leave campaign, but also in the Remain campaign, I think, in, in, in 2016, was to point out that 
sovereignty, however, you know, and control don't necessarily go together. Now, in, in my view, we had sovereignty before. I never even thought we didn't have sovereignty. But supposing I was somebody who was concerned about an, uh, our previous uh, sovereign status. Well, I would still say to that person, do you really think you're going to get more control? You're actually going to get less control. We're going to have to be trying to do deals around the world with some you know, pretty dodgy governments. We are going to be in a very, very weak position because we're going to be bargaining from a position of one instead of being part of the EU bloc. So we're going to be in a very weak bargaining position, fishing and selling marketing shellfish, for instance. And if you get a higher price for fresh fish than you do for frozen fish, I think Plato would say, well, do not cut yourself off from your nearest market where you can get the fresh fish to in under 24 hours before it needs to be frozen. So what would Plato have thought of, of Boris Johnson? Plato was, he enjoyed competence, he enjoyed doing things properly and correctly and with expertise delivered accurately. So what would you think he made? What, what, what would his, if he'd been the form master of Johnson B, what would he, what kind of score would he have given him for the last couple of years? Very low, I'm afraid. Plato is the great champion of truth and truthfulness and rational argument. I think he would have thought that wasn't great. Plato was very anti-cronyism in government. And also in the Republic, Plato has an absolutely coruscating analysis of how demagogues subvert democratic processes to gain power and then while still proclaiming that they are the champions of freedom, actually reducing the rights and freedoms of those around them. And I think we have seen attacks on parliament, on the judiciary, on the media, on civil servants. So we have seen a lot of attacks on experts. And I think Plato would have said that Johnson is a demagogue who has a lot of conflicting tendencies, but some of them are very autocratic. And I think Plato would say he's a not particularly successful demagogue. I think the only aspect of Boris's uh, classical training that I can still see having an effect is his study of ancient rhetorical devices. Whether he does it deliberately or whether he's just imbued Cicero in his youth, I don't know. But if you listen to his speeches, and I, I did notice this a lot, particularly just in the run-up to the Brexit vote, there were a lot of classical rhetorical tropes, you know, lots of grouping of words. Hendiatris is when you kind of have three words grouped together. They're different words, but you're aiming at one central idea, like wine, women and song, for instance, might be applicable to Mr. Johnson. Um, you've got metaphors, similes, assonance alliteration, obviously hyperbole. So all those classical tropes that he has picked up consciously or unconsciously through all that reading of Cicero and so on when he was at school and university, I, I still see that. But that superficial layer, that's the only bit of the classicist I still see in him. 